institutions that have firmly entrenched themselves uh, and become the dominant mode of being in the world, you can't typically do anything about that, right? It's really hard to knock down one of these megalithic institutions. The only thing that seems to do it really well is an unstoppable idea, like an idea that is just, it has to be an idea. So it just, it's bulletproof, right? It permeates people's minds. It wins hearts and minds by serving individual interest. Um, just like zero served the individual interest of the merchant and Bitcoin serves the individual interest of the entrepreneur, um, in, in terms of preserving purchasing power across time. And that seems to be the only viable way that history shows us that otherwise immovable institutions can be brought down is with this unstoppable idea. So we don't see it often, but man, when it happens, the world changes a lot. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the What Is Money show. We are going to continue our exploration into the written work that I did back in 2020 titled The Number Zero in Bitcoin. And I'm picking up today on a section titled The Philosophy of Zero. And this section, we're going to go into... Um, a couple of things. One is this sort of different form of logic that existed in Eastern philosophy 
Um, we're going to look at that through the lens of mathematics, actually, and how it parallels um, some of the things we discovered through the invention of zero mathematically. Um, and then we're going to talk about how that gave rise to um, some very, a very different version of the world, let's say. Zero just was um, something that profoundly changed the world as we know it, uh, and that it gave rise to things like the negative numbers, the imaginary numbers, calculus, uh, which underpins a lot of the modern scientific paradigm. So this is going to start out a bit philosophical, but then it'll branch into mathematics, and then we'll get into kind of the practical implications of the emergence of zero. So hope you will enjoy this. Um, I open this section with a quote from one of the most ancient texts in the world, the Rig Veda, where it is written that, quote, in the earliest age of the gods, existence was born from non-existence, unquote. And so, zero, as we touched on in the last episode, zero arose from the ancient East, right? It came out of India. It spread through um, the Asian continent into the Arab culture through trade, as we described with the merchants. And... Um, even Buddha himself, actually, which obviously uh, Buddhism is a very significant feature uh, of the East, was a known mathematician. Um, actually, in the stories, uh, Buddha used his, his skills. Uh, the book is titled Lalita Vistara, uh, where it's described that the Buddha is excellent with numbers, and it was a skill that he used to woo a certain princess. Um, and the, what's interesting, though, about Buddhism is that there's a logical character that is explored in the philosophy that's different than what we think of as logic. So it's like a different flavor of rationality um, where we tend to think of things as like true or false, right? Like the binary true or false. And in Buddhism, there's something more continuous, more complex. Um, and this reflects uh, a mathematical structure that we'll get into shortly. So in Buddhism, the logical character of the phenomenological world, again, it's more complex than true or false. And this is a an excerpt um, from the Buddha, actually, from the book that I mentioned earlier by the Buddha. And he writes that, quote, anything is either true or not true, or both true and not true, or neither true nor not true. This is the Lord Buddha's teaching, unquote. So this is very confusing, right? This is um, not how we are traditionally programmed to think. That We think there's either, you know, there's the real world out there, there's our subjective interpretation of it, and the subjective interpretation either matches the objective world or it does not, right? It's true or false. But the logical character explored here is again much more complex and uh, difficult to grasp but as we'll see it actually can be more useful when you're looking at um, things like complex numbers and complex uh, systems and complex mathematical reality um, and so this that particular passage is referring to what is called the tetralemma it's also called the four corners of the cat's cat to Catuscoti, Catuscoti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 
And the key to understanding the strangeness of this Eastern logic is the concept of shunya. Uh, this is also, that's the Hindi word for zero. And it's derived from the Buddhist philosophical concept of shunyata or sunyata. And Buddhism, obviously, very um, a very popular practice in Buddhism is meditation. The ultimate goal of meditation is the attainment of enlightenment. And this is said to be found in the, the state of nirvana. And nirvana is equivalent to emptying oneself entirely of all thought, desire, worldly attachment. And it's, a, it's to experientially enter the the void right the the realm of of pure nothingness um the domain of zero right the domain of that philosophical or experiential concept of zero and this is very interesting because so nirvana it's like in this realm where it's this realm of infinite potential right is is in the realm of pure nothingness where potential goes to infinity because as soon as anything is manifest, uh, that means there's necessarily a loss of potential, right? Whatever that thing that has become manifest, it can't possibly be manifested uh, the same way again. So there's like this loss of potential that comes with with being itself. And so nirvana is like this pure realm of non-being or pure emptiness or pure nothingness in which potential goes to infinity, right? Anything is possible when in the realm of, of pure nothingness. And that is the place meditators are trying to reach, is that domain of pure nothingness. You've detached from thought, from mind, from sensation, from, from even the breath, right? Um, and now anyone that's, that's practiced, like a Vipassana-style meditation, which is, is one I've practiced myself, um, knows that you typically, to try and diffuse the monkey mind, the, the chatterbox we all have between the ears, that you actually start, you typically, one of the techniques is to start counting the breaths in and out. Um, I personally say breathing in, one, breathing out, two, I'm sorry, I actually do it this way, breathing in, two, breathing out, three, I breathe out on odd numbers. And then when I, I count to 10, so I get to 10, say breathing in, 10, and I say breathing out, zero, one, and then I breathe in on two again. So I'm breathing in on even numbers, breathing out on odd numbers. And I say that as a mode as a way to say something in my internal dialogue such that it prevents me from having other thoughts. Now, this is way easier said than done. It takes a ton of repetition. But for me, that, that seems to be key because if I just try to focus, some people will tell you just to focus on sensations or feelings, but my internal dialogue is so active that I actually have to say something else so I don't drift off into another thought. And eventually, uh, when you practice this for a long time, you can kind of get to the point, I, the first thing I do is drop away the counting. So I just get to the breathing in, breathing out, when I'm actually starting to feel myself detach. And I'm starting to detach from thought and feeling and becoming more of uh, a sensation of just pure awareness, you might say. And then eventually you might drop the breathing in, breathing out internal dialogue and you will just be, you'll just meditate, you'll just breathe and just be present. Um, difficult to get there. Like it usually takes me more 
then 20 to 30 minutes. So like in a one hour meditation, I usually get there in the second half. I don't always stay there the whole time. You know, sometimes you fall in and out. Sometimes you don't get there at all. It just kind of depends uh, on the day and, and how active your mind is. I find it to be easier after exercise when the body's physically exhausted. Um, but anyways, that's, that's just kind of a description of my experience, at least, of getting to that place of nothingness where you're like actually not um, cognitively engaging with the world, right? Your, your body is just completely relaxed. You are just in a state of pure presence or awareness and you're just breathing. Um, and you know, you could check out the scientific literature on it, but it, it has a, a lot of benefits, right? It increases the gray matter of the brain. It's said to help uh, people deal with depression and PTSD and all, all of these other things. I think it stimulates neurogenesis, which is the growth of new brain cells. So it's, it's not just some kind of woo woo thing that you're trying to do and, um, you know, spiritually develop yourself. There are real practical biological benefits. And, um, so there's a book talking about this place, the void or Nirvana, this, this place you're trying to get to in meditation. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a Buddhist writer. Actually, his name is Thich Nhat Hanh. And he describes Shunyata in the following way. He writes, quote, The first door of liberation is emptiness, shunyata. Emptiness always means empty of something. Emptiness is the middle way between existent and non-existent. Reality goes beyond notions of being and non-being. True emptiness is called wondrous being because it goes beyond existence and non-existence. The concentration on emptiness is a way of staying in touch with life as it is, but it has to be practiced and not just talked about, unquote. So it might be hard for us to conceptualize even the idea of non-being uh, if we consider that being itself is the totality of all of our experiences. So everything you think, see, touch, smell, hear, remember, fantasize, etc. Like any experience you're capable of having, that the composite of all of those those experiences is being. There's another domain, which is non-being, right? That this um, the world beyond the experiences that we can possibly have. That alone is very difficult for us to imagine, even the idea of non-being. Um, but this is saying that you know, true emptiness is, is beyond that, right? Like reality itself is really beyond both being and non-being. And uh, what, what he calls here wondrous being, true emptiness itself. And it's beyond both existence and non-existence. And, you know, who knows what this is? I, got, I, I actually just finished a meditation retreat here in Nashville. And uh, a lot of it had had to do with focusing on let's just say it was a secular meditation retreat. So they weren't using a lot of the language of Buddhism or, or any ancient practice. And they were instead focusing on going into the quantum realm, right? That you're actually, as I understood it, they're representing this place of, of shunyata or nirvana as like the actual quantum realm where, uh, as we've 
learned through science, there is a realm that is beyond space and time, right? If you've ever heard of the, the concept of quantum entanglement, where two particles, particles can be brought together, uh, quantumly entangled through a certain process, and then you can then separate these particles as far as you want, you know, light years apart. And then what you do to one of those particles instantaneously affects the other. Like it's, it's a, it's a causal principle that exceeds the speed of light because it's somehow operating through this, this field, this quantum field that's transcendent of space and time in a way that we don't fully understand, but, um, it's real, right? It, it is, it's not just, again, not just some woo woo thing that people are, uh, and meditating and, and fantasizing into existence, there's there's real scientific rigor that backs um, quantum theory. And indeed, quantum theory is one of the remote, most robust theories we have in terms of describing reality. So it's interesting to me that this ancient practice, right, of meditation and Buddhism, it was actually keying in on this, this idea that we're really only that science is just now starting to penetrate and and grapple with and the things that buddhists learned about shunyata again these were discovered in meditation this wasn't through the scientific method this wasn't with any kind of advanced instrumentation it was just that simple act of sitting with oneself and diffusing diffusing the thinking mind and just being, um, tapping into uh, a deeper substrate of reality, perhaps, that these these truths were discovered. Um, and so, and again, back to meditate, like how to, how do we meditate? I described how I like to do it. There's a Buddhist monk uh, here from the ancient Watts that I quote as well. And he writes, quote, when we meditate, we count. We close our eyes and we are aware only of where we are in the moment and nothing else. We count breathing in one and we count breathing out two and we go on this way. When we stop counting, that is the void, the number zero, the emptiness, unquote. So it is that, it is that experience, right? It's the experience of nirvana or of shunyata that was inspirational to the development of the number zero. It's as if the realization was had that we needed a symbolic representation of that experience in mathematics, right? In this, this primary language of nature um, that other numeral systems like. Someone had the idea or, or took the risk, I guess you might say, to think, hmm, you know, each one of these numbers is kind of, is categorical in a way, right? One says, well, there's a single unit of whatever the thing is. Two would be two, uh, two units, right? Two objectively circumscribed or describable units of the thing. Puts it in the category of two, um, you know, three, four, so forth. It's a super powerful categorical system because you can use it to apply to almost anything that can be quantified. But what was not obvious, you know, again, like the Greeks thought that you needed, that shape and number were very closely related, which we're actually, we haven't talked about that yet. We will talk about it. So it was like they were only looking at mathematics in the realm of being itself. They hadn't considered 
the realm of non-being, much less the realm of wondrous being, which is like beyond being a non-being. And somehow zero is that, right? It's the category for no categories, which is paradoxical even to say, yet um, it's something that was had to be experienced, I guess, and then someone had to make this like pioneering leap to implement it into a mathematical system um, to, to really get mathematics to advance. So it's remarkable to me that, um, you know, you could think of, and uh, this is all really hard to talk about, by the way, words start to fall short here, but there's like between existence and non-existence, there's, there's emptiness or maybe in emptiness, there's existence and non-existence and zero what it was that zero was the symbolic representation we used for that. And so it's, it's interesting because I, so I mentioned that meditation obviously benefits the brain in a number of ways. And as we'll see here, um, this is a theme we, we revisit on this show often that effectively the marketplace in the world is kind of like a global brain, right? Like it's where all of our individual minds are wired together by price, the price signal essentially. So as prices move, that's a crystallization and a distillation of all the information relevant to a specific commodity. And it's something we can all act upon. And as we act upon the price, it actually influences the price, right? So if the price of copper goes down and I buy more, well, that's increasing demand for copper. So I'm pushing the price back up through my action and the composite of all everyone acting on a particular commodity in the world is like what moves its price. And so it's interesting to me that in the same way that meditation benefits the individual's mind, right? Just by going into that place of nothingness, um, that somehow the, the symbolic representation we extracted from that actually gave like the global mind as an update, right? That we, we, we developed this new, more sophisticated language in the Hindu Arabic numeral system that leads to all of these other, this like cascade of consequences, of positive consequences that, like I mentioned earlier, negative numbers, imaginary numbers, calculus, etc. So it's as if the when we pulled zero out of the experiential domain of meditation, it became and implemented it into numeracy. It became like a, an upgrade for the global mind. So in the same, the rough parallel I'm trying to say here is in the same way meditation benefits the individual mind, the, the concept of zero that we extracted from meditation also benefits the collective mind. So just kind of an interesting observation. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. 
Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Now I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a coin join. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. So we could say that being discovered in the spiritual state Zero is, um, you know, there's a spiritual element to it, um, or perhaps you could just say philosophical, right? That um, depending on, or even religious, right? Depending on your interpretation of Buddhism. And actually in the East, they don't make as much, the, dis, the point of distinction between religion and philosophy is much more subtle than in the West, right? Where we talk about religion as something very distinct from philosophy. So zero is, you know, because it came out of the East, it is this kind of like religious philosophical artifact that came through the practice of meditation. Um, yet it has these, despite that, despite it being philosophical or theological, it is profoundly practical in its implications and its utility, et cetera, et cetera. And so to start giving you an idea of of those practical consequences, I want to shift into the mathematics of zero. And as we described earlier, when you initially have just numbers, right? One through infinity. But with the introduction of zero, the idea of nothing as a number, right? It's, it's rather than something, rather than only numbers of existence or something being a number or a numeral, zero is the first nothing as a numeral effectively. And one of the first implications of that by putting the zero behind the positive number line is, well, what happens when I have X plus five equals two, right? You can't solve that. That used to be like an unsolvable equation when you don't have zero, but once you introduce zero, 
you realize that, oh, you could actually, we already went below one, so what, what goes below zero? And once you start go, going below zero, you get into the domain of the negative numbers, which is basically this perfect reflection of the positive numbers cast across zero, right? You start going backwards, zero, negative one, negative two, et cetera. And one of the first implications of that, once you get that negative one, is this question of, well, what is the square root of negative one? You can't get a square root of negative one because when you multiply two negative numbers together, it's always a positive answer. So mathematicians wrestled with this for a long time. They thought it made no sense, almost like zero itself, that it just, the answer was not obvious. And ultimately, I think it was uh, Descartes that started describing them as imaginary numbers, right? So the square root of negative one equals I, lowercase i, and that denoted an imaginary number, which meant it's not a number in the real number plane. But it is somehow a number because, there, you know, it's, it's the solution to um, a, an arithmetic operation, even though the answer is not necessarily a number. So uh, it kind of made this leap, right? Just like we made the leap with, into zero itself and said that, okay, maybe there are certain numbers that just aren't real and we're just going to call them imaginary. And the other, the next leap that was taken was someone decided that, okay, let's plot, because also it was Descartes that came up with plotting numbers. Um, I forgot, what is it called? Basically where you're plotting numbers on a, a graph, right? We, you probably remember the x-axis and the y-axis from school. You know, you can plot these different equations and it'll, it'll draw lines or parabolas or whatever the shape may be. Well, someone took the pioneering leap to say, what if we take the real number plane as one axis and then we plot the imaginary number plane on a different axis, on a, a perpendicular axis? And this gives you a very interesting, like, rotational thing, um, a rotational axis. And so there's a picture of this in the piece, but Basically, when you take these, uh, this four axis, um, this four axis structure, and you start to say, uh, you know, what are the answers to, and this is like, this is where you see the, the paradoxical nature of the imaginary I, if you consider the equation plus or minus X squared plus one equals zero. You know, it comes with two possible answers. And so you get this where you're like starting on the real plane where you might just have one, right? Then you start to see the answer to that. The two possible answers to that are either I or negative I. So you'd actually, which is equal to I cubed, by the way. So you start to plot these answers, you see that they rotate around this axis. It goes from the real number plane into the imaginary plane, back into the real plane, back into the imaginary plane, back to the real plane. And depending on how high you exponentiate those answers, it keeps rotating around. So it's a very strange um, mathematical structure, and it's, it's reminiscent of that Buddhist tetralemma that we mentioned earlier, right? That everything is it's either true or not true, or both true and not true, or neither true nor not true. Because each one of these formulas, uh, and these are 
they're mentioned in the piece, but it's plus or minus x squared plus 1 equals 0, plus or minus x cubed plus 1 equals 0. And you can again, you can exponentiate x higher to keep rotating around. Those answers, right? So they're basically a reflection of that tetralogy because you have one answer that's true, which is 1. You have one that is not true, which is i. You have one that is both true and not true, and that it could be negative 1 or i squared. Right, so negative one's a real number. I squared is not. It's on the complex plane. Or one that's neither true nor not true, which would be negative I or I cubed. These are both on the complex plane, the imaginary plane. So it was just a weird, you know, it's strange, again, how Buddhist intuition or, or meditation perhaps discovered this strange logic of imaginary, where imaginary numbers meet real numbers centuries and centuries before mathematicians ever figured this out. And so it's kind of, it's like a weird justification of Buddhism and that you start to see similar, um, you see these structural parallels between kind of like a, a meditative intuition and then like a mathematical structure that emerged centuries later. And so it's a more, again, you can't, it's, it's hard to say that one form of logic and this like binary yes no logic is that more true or more useful than this more continuous form of logic um i kind of think it of it as like wet code versus dry code which is a, a term that nick zabo has used before in that there are certain things that you can code into a, a binary computer system uh you know just using ones and zeros right like was the stock price of Apple above or below $1,000 on May 24th, 2017? Something like that, right? It's just a yes or no answer. Um, but there are many things in reality that you can't code that way, right? It's um, things that are just more subjective or aesthetic even. Um, you know, was the, the president's State of the Union delivery inspiring, right? You can't really give a yes or no. That's going to be opinion-driven. It's more of a wet code type thing. So, but it's not entirely subjective either because it's still, there's like a mathematical premise to it. And you hear this, you know, this black and white, you know, yes, true or not true. You see this a lot in Aristotelian logic, which we're going to get into. That was like that underpinned um, the power base of the medieval church. And this whole idea, like once you introduce zero, you get this more continuous form of fluid logic. It sort of undermines the the black, or maybe not undermines, but at least provides another viewpoint to uh, the black and white binary logic. You get this more continuous form of logic. And you see this in, in language and when we communicate with one another, when people say things, like the example I use in the piece um, is that, so again, binary is like black or white, right? True or false. This continuous logic is kind of like the shades of gray in between. And you hear people speak this way when they say things like, well, she wasn't unattractive. What does that mean, right? Does that mean she wasn't unattractive? You're saying she's somewhere between attractive and not attractive, but you're not really specifying where. Um, so there's like this ambivalence, right? And and oftentimes that's just a more 
accurate assessment of the reality of the situation, right? It's not like someone just either is attractive or not attractive. There's all these different um, factors and, and whatnot going into it. So um, this other form of logic is just something, it's it's useful in its own right. It doesn't mean that it's it's better or worse than binary logic, but it's definitely useful in, in different contexts. Now, looking back at that, um, the rotational axis we just described that's going between the real and the complex number planes, someone eventually figured out that um, if you scaled this axis up into the third dimension, right? So we have dimension one, real numbers, dimension two, imaginary numbers. What's orthogonal to that, right? So if you, if you imagine that like laying on a sheet of paper and you came off of that rotational system into the uh, third dimension, if you will, what, what results? And the three-dimensional model that arises from this is called the Riemann sphere, named after the, um, the mathematician Riemann. And in this sphere, very kind of difficult to describe. I can't articulate the, the mathematics besides this, but essentially the sphere comes off the page and at the very peak of the sphere, the opposite pole from zero, where zero is the base, at the opposite pole of the Riemann sphere, you find zero's twin, which is infinity. And these, like depending on how you're running the calculation, um, the answer to the equations giving rise to the Riemann sphere can flip between zero and infinity and like in just one flash of mathematical permutation. So it zero basically implied the existence of infinity. Like once you accepted that zero was a necessary and useful part of a, a numeral system, if infinity became an inescapable outcome of that. It's because of this structure, this Riemann sphere. And now that was also uh, an affront to Aristotelian logic, which we'll get into, that there was not, like infinity was considered to be kind of heretical because there was, you know, God was the prime mover. He moved this whole little finite universe and there was nothing beyond uh, the prime mover. But infinity implies that it goes on and on and on forever and ever. Um, so this is like, I mean, you could maybe say these are like the twin polarities of yin and yang or something that, that you have zero, this absolute unchangeable thing, and then it implies infinity. Um, and this whole, this whole notion would come to challenge the philosophical basis that the medieval church was built upon, right? When it would actually was using uh, the Aristotelian logic and story to like convert people to its cause, this whole mathematical structure coming to being was a challenge to that. Now we'll get into this more soon, but I want to read a quote here from Charles Seif, which is author of Zero Biography of a Dangerous Idea, um, because I think he just brilliantly describes this relationship between zero and infinity. He wrote that, quote, zero and infinity always looked suspiciously alike. Multiply zero by anything and you get zero. Multiply infinity by anything and you get infinity. Dividing by, so dividing a number by zero yields infinity. 
Dividing a number by infinity yields zero. Adding zero to a number leaves it unchanged. Adding a number to infinity leaves infinity unchanged. So if we go back to the Eastern philosophical perspective, this relationship between zero and infinity again makes sense because as we said it's only in that nirvana state that place of absolute nothing nothingness that potential becomes infinity right that everything is possible when nothing exists but as soon as something exists there's at least some potential some decrement to potential right it's below infinity it's a little bit less than infinity and so this idea, this again, mathematical idea that while well, zero implies the existence of infinity, like it was already presupposed or was already existent in Buddhist philosophy or logic. And in Buddhist philosophy, you know, it's nothing is separate from anything else. Everything is endlessly intertwined. Is this, this vast causal network where everything is linked to everything else. Um, Nothing is considered to have its own isolated, non-interdependent existence. Like, it's just everything exists in relationship. Relationship is primary, you might say. Um, and the Buddhists call this dependent co-origination, meaning that all things depend on one another. Everything is connected. Everything depends on everything else. Everything affects everything else. Um, and the only exception to all of this codependent origination is that realm of pure nothingness, nirvana, right? Where there's, you're in pure emptiness. There is nothing. There is no existence. It's beyond the realm of existence. So, um, and that was the pathway. That was what Buddhism, that was the aim of Buddhism, right? Was to, to enter nirvana and attain enlightenment, um, just by entering that that realm of pure emptiness. So, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. It's just the old. It's the ultimate spiritual goal of Buddhism, right? Is Nirvana, and it's and you attain it by entering the void through meditation. And this was just I don't know. You know, where did this pursuit even come from? How did people think this up originally? I don't know. Yet we got this profoundly practical thing out of meditation. I'm sure we've received many things, many benefits across time, many different people. Um, but to find like this cornerstone to the, the language of mathematics itself and meditation is just, I don't know, I find it to be quite mind blowing. And there are ancient Buddhist texts that say, the truly absolute and the truly free must be nothingness. So in this way, again, to be truly absolute, meaning like unchanging, and to be truly free, as in the maximization of potential, um, or infinite potential would be like truly free, like it must be born from pure nothingness. So zero was like the discovery of nothingness codified into mathematics. Uh, it's like we touched this latent quality of reality that's not obvious in, in regular experience where we're just trying to, you know, count things and eat and build shelter and survive. 
Um, and it's, it's a, it's a discovery that proves to be emancipating for mankind in many ways. And that it led us, uh, into the, the modern scientific paradigm, um, really through the invention of calculus, which we'll get into shortly, but, um, and ultimately, you know, the realm we live in today, the age of zeros and ones, the, the digital age this is all only possible with a Hindu Arabic zero based numeral system. And so I like to describe zero as this source of liberation that was discovered deep in meditation. And it, you know, we found it in or near Nirvana itself. And this was, you know, to Buddhist, this was like zero is almost like a whisper from the universe or from Dharma or from God or whatever word you want to put here for the the transcendent realm, you know, the quantum realm, whatever you want to call it. Um, words just don't do justice when we get into the domain of the divine, typically. And, you know, somewhat paradoxically, if you consider that zero was a whisper from God, if we're going to, that's the term I like to use is like the word for the truth that is beyond words. I call it God. I grew up in the Christian South. That's the word we use. Use whatever word you like. Somewhat paradoxically, though, this discovery, right, this the zero that was a whisper from the experience of God in meditation would become a the component, really, the, the primary component that would shatter the institution that was dominating the world um, centuries later through monopolizing access to God, which was the medieval church. And it was also... Um, a critical piece, like, you know, as we'll get into in a bit, in not only facilitating the gold standard, because the global gold standard came to be once the world was wired together with telecommunications, such that um, the whole world was able to move to a single monetary standard. That's really when gold got promoted. Um, and we had this, like, global, global gold standard was through the invention, or was through the facilitation of, of global telecommunications that was all dependent on zero. Um, and then also Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is this new digital gold dependent on cryptography, uh, dependent on software, hardware, et cetera. All of these things were only possible through the invention of zero. So it's, it's hard to understate how impactful this strangely simple discovery or invention, right? Again, is it an invention? Did we just invent the numeral zero? to symbolize the discovery of the void or shunyata or do you call zero like a number that exists independently of us um you know what i don't know language again sort of falls short here but the i guess the point there is the two key inceptors for bitcoin it's like you had to have zero to get telecommunications to get the internet uh, telecommunications, gold standard, internet, and then if you combine those three things together, like internet plus gold standard, you get Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's just taking the properties, the economic properties of gold and the internet, combined them and kept, really optimized the best of both and discarded the rest. So it was, uh, yeah, I mean, this this philosophical concept of zero is just quite mind-bending. Um and now I think we should pivot to talking about 
the implications that the emergence of the number zero had on the dominant institution of the day um, over the centuries, which um, which was the church, the medieval church. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Before we get into the church, we have to talk about the ancient Greeks. And the ancient Greeks, you know, largely influenced by Pythagoras, Aristotle, Ptolemy, um, core to their, their philosophical conception of reality was that there's no void no nothingness, no zero. Um, and the Greeks, and they thought this way because they had inherited their notion of mathematics from the ancient Egyptians. And the ancient Egyptians, and thus the Greeks, they made little distinction between shape and number. So again, it was just, they were kind of only operating their mathematics in the realm of being. And this is something we still have embedded in our mathematics today. When we say something like two squared, right? What does that actually mean? It means you're taking a line, right? That's two units long and you're converting it into a square. You're multiplying it by itself. So two times two equals four. When you square a line that has side two, you get a square with area four, right? Two times two is four. So there, you know, that's just kind of like a vestige of, of that old way of thinking about shape and number being the same thing. And that's also what prevented them from understanding that zero was a number because how, what is the shape of zero? Like the nothingness doesn't have a shape. And so how could, you know, like that's, it's that, I guess that gives you some appreciation <laughs> that if you think shape and number are the same thing, you would obviously have this blind spot to zero. It just would be very hard to conceive of something a non-shaped number when you've taken uh, shape and number to be sort of the same thing. And um, so the Greeks, they really believed numbers had to be visible to be real 
Whereas the ancient Indians, as I mentioned earlier, they perceived numbers as more of this intrinsic part of a latent, invisible reality, separate from our conception of them. So that the numbers do exist independent of numerals, whereas the Greeks thought they were more like the same thing, right? Like you had to see the number or the number to make the numeral real. Um, and so if we look at the work of Pythagoras, really, uh, he was a cult leader, actually. Um, and the Pythagorean cult, their symbol was the pentagram. So the five-pointed star. And in this sacred shape, it contained the key to their view of the universe, which was the golden ratio. Um, this is considered to be the most beautiful number um, you've probably seen this. It's often referred to as the, the Fibonacci sequence. Um, you get it by basically taking a square of a certain size, I'm sorry, a rectangle of a certain size, and then you expand it out by a certain proportion. That's roughly like one third larger. Uh, what is the mathematical operation here? So you get one over one equals one, two over one equals two, three over two equals 1.5, five over three equals 1.66, eight over five equals 1.6. Uh, 13 over 8 equals 1.625 and it converges on this number which is 1.618 and this is something you see you know typically in the nautilus shell is the common example um, it was considered to be the most beautiful number again like kind of like the the pinnacle of this relationship between shape and number it's the spiral that's encoded into many forms of nature um, uh, the way ferns grow, they grow at this angle. Uh, we didn't know this at the time, but centuries later, we would discover the double helix of DNA exhibits this curve. The spiral arms of galaxies exhibit this curve. It's like the very strange mathematical proportion that's encoded in, in nature at different scales. Um, and so it's, and they even, the Greeks started to use this and embed this into their architecture, right? So if you look at the Parthenon building, it's constructed in accordance with the golden ratio. And um, it was thought to be, you know, very aesthetically pleasing. Also like the ratio, the proportionality of a face, um, the closer it is to that golden ratio, the more attractive people tend to be judged as. And so, um, oh, pineapples, like there's just so many things. Uh, you can just Google the golden ratio and look at some images. Like it's, it's in everything. It's really, really mind blowing. And it was considered like for this reason, it was almost, uh, a divine number in a way that they considered this proportionality in the golden ratio as like a window into the transcendent, a window into beauty as such, you know, something that was like his soul, soul sustaining um that was just so intrinsically rewarding um that it was embedded in nature at every scale and such that the greeks try to embed it in their art their music their architecture etc and so there's an image in the piece you could check it out it shows the nautilus shell the parthenon how the ratio is calculated um geometrically um it also applied i mentioned this to music when you when musicians would, um, in musical harmonics, they would get what's called a perfect fifth. And that was, uh, it was considered to be one of the most evocative musical tones that you could create. 
and that too was based on the golden ratio. Um, and there was an, on the flip side, there was another, uh, type of sound called discordant tritones, really just called tritones, but they were discordant and they were known to be like the devil in music. And this was something that was not, uh, that was distant from the golden ratio. And so in this, so this, and the music, music was very important to the ancient Greeks because they actually viewed the cosmos and the heavens to be this symphony of spheres, right? They called this the music of the spheres, um, was what Aristotle would later call, later call the celestial spheres model. And that the movements of planets and heavenly bodies generated this symphonic harmony of the spheres and that they created like a music, like a celestial music that suffused everywhere into the cosmic depths. And that it's like everything was ratio, right? Like the, the ratio was permeating the entire universe. That's why everything was shaped according, not everything, but many things were shaped according to the golden ratio. And there was just this supernatural connection between the, the ratio itself and aesthetics and life and the cosmos. Um, and it really became a central tenet of, of Western civilization itself. And that it upheld the, the divinity of the church, right? That, oh, in the, the, the ancient Greek celestial spheres model. A very important point that applies to this piece is that it was considered to be strictly finite. So there was a outermost sphere that was like the edge of all reality. And then at the law, the smallest scale were atoms, right? And below that atomic surface, there was nothing, there's no void. So beyond the outermost celestial shell. There was no nothing, right? The prime mover was God that moved the, the outer sheet, and there was nothing below the cosmic uh, atomic, I'm sorry, the atomic surface. And so you had no infinity and no void, right? It was it was this finite universe. Um, and again, as we mentioned earlier about zero, basically the once you get zero into the negative numbers, into the imaginary number, imaginary numbers, into the Riemann sphere, infinity is a reflection of zero. So zero implies the existence of infinity in like an irrefutable way and that so for that reason zero posed a major threat to the conception of a finite universe and it was this finite universe model that was necessary to the dominion of the church um and so after the fall of the roman empire the church basically became the dominant institution in the world and it did this or it substantiated itself as the gatekeeper to heaven. So it was the intermediary between people and God, right? Like you had to go through the church. You had to, you know, jump through the hoops and, um, you know, perform certain rituals and make sure you paid the certain amount of money and all of these things to get into heaven. Um, and anyone who crossed the church or fell out of favor with the church, you know, they could find themselves or their family members barred from the gates of heaven. And this was a pretty damning thing for people that like really believed, um, you know, deeply that, that, that was everything, right. That was their only way to God was through this institution. So this, this institution had a very 
inordinate sway over people's minds and hearts um, just by virtue of this claim that they're basically the dominant institution on the earth, um, which was seen to be the center of that finite universe. And so if they're the dominant institution of the center of the universe, they're kind of like the dominant institution of God's universe. And so it was a claim, right? The church claimed to have absolute sovereignty um, in the world on earth, right? Only below only God. Um, but that was that entire, that claim to absolute sovereignty was premised on this finite universe model. So any threat to that finite universe model would really threaten the, the dominion or the sovereignty of the church itself. And so, you know, that, as we'll get into here, this symbol for the void, because it implies infinity, it sort of undermines that finite universe model and is therefore heretical to the existence of the church, or at least the power base or the explanatory framework for the church's dominion. And this, I think, is an interesting parallel too with Bitcoin later, in that we have now this discovery of absolute scarcity that Bitcoin represents, right? Kind of like a uh, a zero growth asset, right? Or a fixed supply asset that's actually undermining the dominion of the Fed or the dominion of the central bank in the world today. And that we now have a money that's that undergoes zero supply growth, right? Zero terminal supply growth that undermines this false religion of ever expanding money supplies. Um, and I, th I think, you know, for reasons we'll get into later, I think in the same way zero sort of leads to this chain of events that ultimately brings down the church, I think Bitcoin's going to do something similar to the central bank. So back to the ancient Greeks, so this, the biggest failure of ancient Greeks, you know, for all their genius, they had so many breakthroughs in engineering and in philosophy and, uh, and, and combat and military technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, a very successful, the most successful civilization of the, of, in all of history at the time. Um, but their biggest failure really was their, their flawed mathematics. They had bad mathematics because they did not, you know, using Roman numerals, it was a system that did not tolerate, well, it's not just the mathematics. It's holding on to that worldview that doesn't tolerate zero or the infinite. And it's hard to say, like, is that because of the mathematics, not understanding zero, or is it because of their worldview that they would not admit zero as a number? Like, again, they, they closely related shape and number, so it's sort of understandable that they just had, they had misconceived the idea of number itself as being, it had to be shape, it had to be something. Um, but suffice it to say, their inability to discover zero prevented them from figuring out things like calculus, right? And differential equations and all these other advanced mathematical um, concepts. And so core to this flawed belief system of theirs was what I just mentioned earlier that you had, you know, the, the cosmic worldview was this sphere the earth is the center. You can't go below the surface of the atom. You can't go above the surface of the, the outermost cosmic sphere. And they basically considered the universe to be like this macrocosmic atom 
where you had stars winking down towards the core, which is Earth, and you know atoms constituted everything inside of it. But there was there was a there was a a limit, right? You couldn't go beyond. You couldn't go below. And so, with nothing nothing conceived to be below and nothing conceived to be above, there's no infinity. There's no void. So, um, this was very much like it inhibited the progress basically of ancient Greeks because they couldn't discover a better form of mathematics to figure out these other things. So it was Aristotle's interpretation of this finite model um, with refinements from Ptolemy as well that, that was used as the ideological foundation uh, for the church's power on earth, right? So the church is the dominant institution the cosmic core which is earth and therefore the dominant institution of the universe and in that aristotelian conception the force moving that outer shell was the prime mover god right and then all of the, the we talked earlier about the harmony of the spheres or the, the the cosmic music that was suffused into the universe that movement drove uh the music or the motions down into god moving that outer sheet move drove the music or movements down into the universe and that was considered the official interpretation of divine will being expressed that god was moving that outer sheet and that it was permeating down into existence right and that's what was driving god's will in life right for for every individual and as christianity was sweeping through the west at this time this was the explanatory framework that uh, that the church was using to proselytize and convert people was this exact description. And all of that was based on that Aristotelian interpretation of the finite universe. And to object to that, right, to, to say that, oh, maybe there is a void or there is an infinity or to otherwise object to that in any way, it was eventually considered to be an objection to the existence of God himself and therefore the dominion of the church. So it was not, you couldn't talk about it, right? It was heretical to even talk about the idea that that model might be wrong. Yet, at the same time, we had this Hindu-Arabic numeral system proliferating due to its superior utility that we described earlier. And so infinity is kind of like, it's being actualized by the same logic that was like seeking to undermine it. Um, and that, you know, Aristotelian logic was also, um, you know, th there's a, there's a rigorous component to it. So mathematics is a very rigorous expression of that. And when you, you rigorously deduce that, um, infinity is basically a reflection of zero that you start to see you start to see this contradiction emerge and like you're, you're saying there's one interpretation of Aristotle's model of the universe that it's strictly finite, no infinity, no void. Yet there's this other mathematical interpretation saying, well, there's definitely a zero and there's definitely an infinity. So you, you have this, this clash, right? And this built attention over time. And by the 13th century, some bishops began calling assemblies to question whether these Aristotelian doctrines went against the omnipotence of God, asking questions like, 
you know, can God move the heavens or that macrocosmic atom in a straight line? Because if he could, then he'd be moving it. It would leave behind a vacuum, right? So, and, and into what is it moving? If there's nothing, there's no infinity, there's nothing beyond the shell. Well, then God can move the thing, but what is he moving it into? And if he can't move the thing, then he's not omnipotent. So you start having these weird like breakdowns. And so there's that either implied, right? Like the existence of the vacuum, which some would interpret as the void or moving it into infinity as that shell is moved, or it implies that God's not omnipotent. So it, there's like this irreconcilable thing that caused the, the Aristotelian model to kind of break or start to break under its own rate, weight. And although the church would continue to cling to this view for centuries and in very brutal ways, right? It, it was burning books, burning Protestants alive, you know, all kinds of horrible things. Uh, it was really zero as this kind of unstoppable idea, right? That you just couldn't argue with the utility of the thing that really marked the beginning of the end for the domineering and oppressive institution called the medieval church. And if you started to take that idea seriously, right, that there was an infinity and there was a void, well, if the universe is infinite, that means there's at least a lot of planets. And many of those are likely to have their own churches. Like, again, you switch from this model where Earth is center of the universe and the only populated planet in the world to this idea of an infinite universe. You've gone from finite to an infinite universe. And that just undermines the church's claim to absolute sovereignty in the universe. So there was this like per- this perception in the minds of people that the church was it just becoming less powerful as a result of this this nascent uh, mathematical framework. And if the earth's no longer the center of the universe, then how could the church have universal dominion, right? Like this is this major perspectival shift. And so this, I think this foreshadows the invention of Bitcoins later, but zero ultimately becomes the idea that breaks the church's grip on humanity. You know, again, just a discovery, right? Just a very practical psychotechnological discovery that breaks the institutional dominion of the church, much like Bitcoin is, uh, you know, it's an invention, but I think it is, it also represents the discovery, the one-time discovery of this immovable money supply or unchangeable money supply. And that's breaking the institutional grip of the central bank, which depends on the exact opposite, right? Just like the church depended on a finite universe, but zero implied an infinite universe and that broke its institutional and ideological dominion, you've got the institutional and ideological dominion of the central bank premised on an ever-expanding money supply. And what do we get? We get Satoshi giving us this money supply that cannot be expanded. So it's like, it's a, it's a strange inversion. And, um, you know, it's like the, maybe if, if I'm right about this, that uh, Bitcoin's like an echo of history, right? It's like an echo of the discovery of zero um, representing like the discovery of a discovery of nothing that begins to change everything. And so I'll read a quote here um, from the piece I wrote that 
Zero was the smooth stone slung into the face of Goliath, a death stroke to the dominion of the church. Felled by an unstoppable idea, the suppressive institution's fall from grace would make way for the rise of the nation-state, the dominant institutional model in modernity. So, yeah, you know, it's institutions that have firmly entrenched themselves uh, and become the dominant mode of being in the world, and you can't typically do anything about that, right? It's really hard to knock down one of these megalithic institutions. The only thing that seems to do it really well is an unstoppable idea, like an idea that is just, it has to be an idea, so just it's bulletproof, right? It permeates people's minds. It wins hearts and minds by serving individual interest, um, just like Zero served the individual interest of the merchant and Bitcoin serves the individual interest of the entrepreneur um, in, in terms of preserving purchasing power across time. And that seems to be the only viable way that history shows us that otherwise immovable institutions can be brought down is with this unstoppable idea so we don't see it often, but man, when it happens, the world changes a lot. Um, so where I'd like to go next is talking about Zero as an, what I call an ideological juggernaut. So it starts to just change so many things as it gets assimilated into the world. Mm -hmm.